Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. And welcome to our show. I explained the whole where is Kion Wolf thing yesterday. I'm not going to explain it again, but we'll, we'll be getting Kion Wolf back at some point. Uh, right now, we're going to have a conversation about democracy. Um, you know, I think that we, we cherish anyway the notion that we have a democracy in America, but we also are aware of the fact that in many of the ways that we were taught about democracy in our eighth grade civics class, we don't have a democracy. Um, here's how uh, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren described at least one of the problems. We have a problem. Money. Six years ago today, the United States Supreme Court made the problem worse, a lot worse. Thanks to the Supreme Court, our system of elections is riddled with corruption. Money floods our political system, money that lets a handful of billionaires shape who gets into Congress and may decide who sits in the White House. And as Congress has become more beholden to billionaires and less worried about the American people, just look at what's happened in Washington. Armies of lawyers and lobbyists flood the hallways of Congress and regulatory agencies, urging just a little tilt for every law and every rule. A sentence here, an exception there, and always tilting in favor of the rich and the powerful. All right. So that's one way of uh, expressing one of the problems. We're going to talk about a lot of different problems, including that one, but also things like gerrymandering um, and, and also raise the question about whether we have too much democracy or not enough democracy. Not everybody on this show is going to have the same answer to that question. And we like that. So let me tell you who's here. Uh, joining us from NPR studios in Washington, D.C., Michael Lynn, co-founder of New America and the author of several books on politics and policy. Most recently, Land of Promise, an economic history of the United States. In May, he wrote an op-ed uh, in The New York Times. One of the things that got us thinking for a couple of months about this show. Is there too much democracy in America or too little? Also with him in the studios there, Jonathan Rausch, uh, contributing editor at The Atlantic and The National Journal and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He wrote the cover story in the July-August issue of The Atlantic, How American Politics Went Insane. Uh, and joining us a little bit later um, by, uh, by phone uh, is Dave Daly. Uh, he is the author of Rat Bleeped. This is sort of one of those books whose titles we can't even really quite say. Rat Bleeped, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. He's the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com. He's the new publisher of the, and CEO of the Connecticut Mirror. Anyway, you'll be meeting him later. So, um, Michael Lind, you've been with us before. We're excited to have you back. Um, one of the stronger statements that you've written about this uh, was uh, a few years ago. You, you wrote out that we can pretty much rule out the idea that American government can be described as a functioning majoritarian democracy that represents the wishes of most of the people in any but, in any but the most formal and technical sense. So help us understand uh, what you mean, or at least at the time uh, meant by that. Why aren't we a functioning majoritarian democracy? Well, I, I think uh, formally the United States is more democratic than it ever was. Obviously, African-Americans uh, 
uh, many poor people in, in the country were formally disfranchised uh, for most of American history up until the Civil Rights Revolution. Uh, the parties are more open, you know, to outside groups, which, as uh, uh, Jonathan has pointed out, you know, can uh, uh, can have adverse side effects. Uh, but I think there is a big disconnect on big issues, whether it's trade or immigration or uh, entitlements, where the major uh, difference is between the uh, donor class in each party uh, and the voters in each party. So, for example, if you, the recent poll showed that a majority of Republicans uh, want taxes to be raised on the rich and they want Social Security to be preserved at the same levels or increased, you know, uh, uh, fulfilling the shortfall by taxation if necessary. So on a lot of these issues, the voters actually have more in common as Republicans and Democrats than the uh, donors, uh, Republicans and Democrats. And uh, there have been political science uh, uh, studies that show that the uh, politicians, uh, not always, they don't always get, uh, uh, the the donor class doesn't always get its way, but it, uh, the politicians tend to defer to their policy views rather than those of their own voters. Now, if you think the you know, the donor class, the people who give vast amounts of money to the parties, uh, is uniquely enlightened, and the uh, uh, voters are deeply misguided about public policy, well, that's a conversation we can have, but that would argue for disfranchising everybody and having a property qualification. Well, we we will talk about certain versions of, of that, but um, let's hear one more criticism uh, of this whole kind of donor class uh, phenomenon. This is a Jane Mayer, uh, author of Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise, rise of the Radical Right. I think we're at a tipping point, maybe, and or at least a point where the country needs to be concerned, because there's always been a conceit in America that you can have great concentrations of wealth and economic inequality along with political equality. And what we're seeing is a lot of very smart people are getting worried that maybe the inequality of wealth is so great now, it's beginning to create inequality in politics. And not just one man, one vote. I think that's Tom Hartman, you here, uh, trying to uh, chime in there with her. So, Jonathan Rausch, I, I know that you have your own theory uh, about this, about what's happened here. But um, before we get into that, let me uh, let's just sort of take something uh, that's an easy, that should be a layup, that should be a pretty easy policy question. Um, anybody who knows what this is, uh, which is a relatively small group of people, uh, can 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 understand right away that the carried interest d- deduction, which allows hedge fund managers and leveraged biotycoons to pay an artificially low tax rate on much of their income, um, kind of sucks for everybody else. And in, in 2012, there was outrage when it turned out that Mitt Romney, uh, who'd made his living at the leveraged bio firm being capital, plus paid less than 15 percent in federal income taxes. Um, you know, so whenever this comes up, um, most of us who do not benefit from it and who feel as though the system, that it's, an, it's a, a perfect expression of the notion that the symptom is somehow rigged, wonder, well, why can't we just get rid of it? I mean, like if everybody hates this idea except a tiny group of people, a very tiny group of people who benefit from it, why can't it be done away with? So let me try to take the conversation in a slightly different direction because I think the conversation we started with was a lot more relevant a year ago than it is in the age of Trump and Sanders. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's some things that we now know. First of all, it is not only difficult for Congress to change the carried interest deduction, it is difficult for Congress to reform the tax code, 
to pass an appropriations bill, to pass an authorization bill, to keep the government open, or even to prevent us from defaulting on the national debt. It is not possible for the Republican Party to exclude from someone who is not in any meaningful sense a Republican from the nomination. And the Democrats have had as their number two candidate someone who is not in any meaningful sense a Democrat. What we're not looking at, what we're looking at here now is not the influence of big money controlling everything. It's something new and worse, which is the inability of anyone to control anything. And that's, I argue, because the systems that we relied on to keep order in politics, to organize all these contending forces, have been weakened or demolished. So I'm going to urge a different kind of focus. I think we're in a kind of emergency right now. Well, I mean, although, Michael, I think what you would say back is it's not that they didn't work well enough, those systems, but they worked too well. And they ultimately resulted in a large group of Americans who were very susceptible to the argument that their their votes didn't mean anything, that they that they really had no political visibility uh, within this system. And, and that in turn made them very open to candidates who could come along and tell them about a very different world that they could live in, where at least some of these control elites, this kind of permanent political class, could be overthrown, and, and they, as populists, could, could rise up. Well, let me say I, I agree uh, entirely with uh, Jonathan's uh, a brilliant uh, essay in, in The Atlantic, right, uh, about uh, how a lot of reforms have backfired by making compromise less easy. Uh, but I think you have to see what's going on in the context of a long-term disintegration of the link between the political parties and the voters. Uh, it's not only in the United States. I mean, it's in Western Europe. It's through the entire industrial world. And it, 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 the parties have gone from being kind of bottom-up federations of, uh, you know, city and county clubs into being essentially triangles of donors, advertisers, and single candidates. Uh, and and Trump is sort of the ultimate example of that, although he, he's uh, self-funded. So, uh, you know, I, I think there are two things going on. Uh, there's, uh, you know, at, at the congressional level, particularly, there's the the kind of organizational decay, which makes compromise more difficult. And Jonathan is, is quite right about that. But I think we also have to look at this longer term alienation of voters who and it and you know the i'm not defending the masses versus the classes i think it's equally terrible you do not want out of touch elites you know that are indifferent to the views of the voters but on the other hand you want the voters to be integrated into politics in a constructive and responsible way through parties through other civic organizations otherwise they just become this mob that picks up a brick you know and throws the the brick through the window now and then to express their anger so, yeah, Jonathan, I occasionally uh, am in communication with uh, members of the Republican donor class who can't believe what they're seeing right now. I mean, and, and they don't know how to react to it. I mean, this is a very well-covered story now that that, that they, in, a, in the ways that they could back certain horses in the past and not necessarily win. I mean, you know, not every horse wins, but in the sense that they could gather around a Marco Rubio or a Jeb Bush or uh, or maybe even a Ted Cruz, although he's a little bit more of an ideological outlier, you know, and, and, and get to a certain place. Something else substituted itself for that system. Um, that system hasn't always produced the world's greatest results, but but something else has substituted itself for that system. Now, the, the people out there who are participating in that, Jonathan, would say, yeah, well, it's populism. It's like, why should donor classes be you know, deciding who our nominees are anyway? 
Well, they never, of course, decided who the nominee was. They were just a voice in the process. Um, one of the here, I, I think uh, Michael and I are on very much the same page. It's very important for for people to feel that they're involved and influ- can have an influence in politics. Historically, one of the key ways we've done this in America and, and did it very well for a century and a half was through the party structures, through the political machines, the civic structures. You know, people like my uncle, my late uncle, would go to the Democratic Party Club in New York and stuff envelopes like every week. A lot of people got involved. They go to stuff like picnics and things like that. What we started doing in the 70s and have been doing right up to this day, and a lot of people want to do even more of it, is weakening the parties. They're at a huge disadvantage now in terms of the law compared with these outside groups. And by weakening the parties, it turns out we haven't made politics stronger, but we have reduced the mechanism by which people can sort of influence politics on a street level. Parties are the people with the networks of activists. They've got the precinct walkers. They've got the voting rolls. They run the caucuses. They have the meetings. You weaken all of that, and basically you're just telling people, well, you can vote every two years. That's it. Although, Michael, I think some of the people who have supported Sanders this time and have supported Trump would say, well, that's exactly what we thought the problem was, too. But but we don't want to to reinvigorate or reanimate the, the kind of mechanisms, the kind of political machine that Jonathan's talking about right now. We want to actually be heard. We want to be heard as an aggregate group of American citizens who are not necessarily ward healers or precinct captains. Captains, Michael, is that is that what you think the message of... Uh, of 2016 populism is? Well, at least on the among the Bernie Sanders group, it may be, but that kind of spontaneous Rousseauian populism is doomed to be ineffectual. Uh, if you're going to become a permanent force, and some of the Sanders people want to continue influencing uh, politics after the Sanders campaign, then you have to have organization and you have to have a treasurer and a secretary and when what the uh, German sociologist Robert Michels called the iron law of oligarchy kicks in, you know, there are officers and followers and dues payers. So I, I think uh, Jonathan and I both agree that the reformers of the 60s and 70s thought that these kind of lower middle class, you know, political bosses in Chicago or Dallas or, you know, whatever, were, were the worst possible threats to democracy. And if you just get rid of them, then democracy will will bloom. But those reforms sort of inadvertently turned the country over to this small group of uh, people in San Francisco and, and in New York uh, and a few other cities uh, with big checkbooks to whom, you know, the politicians, no matter where you are in the country, you have to fly to sort of get in their graces. So, you know, a lesser evil has been replaced by a greater evil, arguably. Although we could say that there's another evil, I mean, or if we're going to call it an evil, which is that there there has been a revolt against exactly that, right? That Sanders and Trump's, Trump are kind of the guys who won't fly to San Francisco and New York. They won't do any of that stuff, and people like them for it. Well, they both have a celebrity. In Sanders's case, it was sort of a fairly recent celebrity. In, in Trump's case, obviously, he's a reality TV star. And I think that the nemesis of a money-dominated system will be outsider populism led by uh, individuals who can rely on celebrity uh, as an alternative to raising money from other people. If I could just jump in here, um, there's a third alternative. It doesn't just have to be a choice between the people on the outside with the biggest checkbooks um, or the uh, the populists with the pitchforks and shovels who are 
basically disorganized and know what they're against but can't actually organize to pass laws. And that middle ground is what the founding fathers tried to establish and what we've been pretty good at, and that's mediated democracy. That's where you have these middlemen, as I call them in my article. They're like parties and machines and bosses and uh, professional politicians and insiders whose job is to try to weave together these forces, forge them into coalitions, create ways that they can deal with each other, develop common positions, and turn those into public policy. Well, a lot of us thought it was, you know, those people were just in the way or they were unnecessary or undemocratic or secretive. And, you know, they did have their problems, no question about it. But it turns out when you blow them out of the water, they're not replaced with kind of magical, automatic populist democracy. They're replaced with all these outside forces and people get more frustrated. Um, let's pick a, something concrete. Let's pick a, um, an issue and sort of talk about how, how it goes through the pipelines that we're talking about right now. I'm going to pick trade because trade is it, it's actually a pretty big issue in a lot of elections, but it's a really big issue this year. And, and a lot of people have been running uh, on effectively an argument saying these international trade deals are bad for America. I'm going to read you a description that I found on PolitiFact. It's not necessarily from this cycle. It might be. It might not be. I've, I've redacted the name of the candidate. I'm going to ask you. Uh, who you trick think it question. is. It's a trick question, yeah. Uh, so here's what PolitiFact writes. It's true that the candidate has been harshly critical of NAFTA on the campaign trail, sh- citing shortfalls in its protections for workers and the environment. The candidate has used words like devastating and a big mistake to describe the agreement. The candidate was particularly critical of NAFTA in February in the run-up to the Ohio primary. In a debate, the candidate said, quote, we should use the hammer of a potential opt-out as leverage to ensure that we actually get labor and environmental standards that are enforced. In a conference call with reporters, the candidate's surrogate said that he was absolutely confident the candidate will reopen negotiations on NAFTA. I have been assured by the candidate and the candidate's top economic advisors that there is no question this position is constant and will stay that way on the North American Free Trade Agreement. You guys want to guess who the candidate was? Well, I'm sure first. it was, was Clinton if it was such a trick Yeah, I'm going to say Clinton in 1992 would be my guess. No, it's Obama in 2008. So here's this guy who's running you know, on pretty strong language about trade. When he gets in, he's not going to be recognizably an anti-trade agreement president. Um, but and, and so after eight years of President Obama, what we have is an electoral cycle where there's a lot of candidates running. I mean, you, you've got you've got Bernie Sanders, who's basically voted against every single international trade agreement ever, including like the International House of Pancakes. He's opposed to all of it. You know, and then you've got tr- Trump, who has these kinds of weird things to say about trade, but basically is positioning himself as an anti-trade uh, guy. Um, and you've got Clinton, who sort of weaving one of these serpentine courses, right? Uh, uh, unwilling to completely come either out against uh, trade deals or or out in favor of them them either. So, you know, Michael, I'll sort of start with you. I mean, so the, some people would say, well, they're, they're demagoguing an issue. You know, they're demagoguing an issue because they know that people don't understand it very well in the first place. So, I don't know, using your prism, what's the right way to, to process an issue like trade in an election like this one? Well, two points. The first is that neither side uh, is really talking about what these uh, trade agreements actually are. They are uh, designed to make transnational production supply chains uh, and sometimes in-market foreign production easier through harmonizing national regulations. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing, you know, and, and some industries benefit, some industries suffer. It tends to benefit Western-based corporations, uh, 
at the expense of, of uh, their competitors sometimes. But these are really transnational regulatory harmonization agreements. And whenever the op-ed pages say trade benefits everyone, David Ricardo, Adam Smith, blah, 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 that's just – it has nothing – it's completely irrelevant. It's not about finished goods going from one country to another. It's about transnational uh, regulation being harmonized to create bigger markets. Uh, now, my second point is that uh, I think in American domestic politics, for historical reasons, the trade issue is equated with good jobs. And the historical reason is that uh, after World War II, thanks to unionization during World War II and afterwards and so on, what had been really, really terrible jobs like steelworker jobs and carmaker jobs uh, became very well-paid, unionized you know, jobs with good benefits. And they defined the idea of a good job in America, whereas janitorial jobs in the 1950s and 1960s, service sector jobs, were and remain terrible, low-paid jobs without benefits. Now, so it, when people are talking about the good-paying jobs going away, that shows this idea that there's something unique about manufacturing jobs being better than non-manufacturing jobs. And it, it's not actually that bad. Right now, uh, about 85% of Americans work in the non-traded domestic service sector. They're just a, a little bit more than 10% uh, work in manufacturing, and that number will continue to go down as a result of automation, among other things. So in a way, this is kind of a distraction from the conversation we should be having which is not about how to have more unionized UAW, you know, uh, automobile worker jobs, but what can we do to improve the lives of uh, people in most of the jobs that are being created now in advanced industrial societies, where most of the job creation is in uh, health care, uh, largely low paid, like home health aides, uh, hospitality and retail. So I think it's all, it's really, it's all very symbolic, and that's why there's so much passion about it. Uh, because it's about uh, uh, symbolism rather than substance. So, uh, Jonathan, I, I want you to process all this any way that you want to. Although, let me just say, you know, let's say, let's say we could pick somebody who was really smart about this stuff, whom we all trusted. I don't know. Adam Davidson. Do we all trust Adam Davidson? I mean, Adam Davidson, if he were here, or we pick 100, 100 economists at universities, you know, 80, 80 or 90 of them would say, look, there just isn't a way to steer the kind of course that either Sanders or Trump is, is describing. It just can't be done. You know, we can talk about in the ways that Michael just did about how trade affects uh, the, the job economy or, or anything else. But but you really can't do these things that have been, become such popular shibboleths during this election cycle. So, I mean, in a way, that contributes maybe to your argument that there needs to be somebody, some kind of kindergarten teacher who can say, yeah, that all sounds really great, but you can't do it. Well, if you mean kindergarten teacher to run American politics, that's not going to work, though it is something a lot of Americans hanker for. One of the things I write about in my article is that 25 to 40 percent of Americans, depending on how you count, believe in this very strange model of democracy in which you vote for someone who's empathetic and non-self-interested, and then they go to Washington they fight, fight, fight. They all do the right thing. We agree politics is over and we have a good solution and the matter is settled. It's just that simple. And of course, the whole problem here, you know, take trade. Okay, I'm, I like trade. I'm basically a friend of it. Uh, I think it takes a bum rap for a lot of other stuff that's going on. But 
no one should care what I think about free trade in particular. What we care about is having a system that can take a lot of deeply opposing views on free trade. There's you know, not a strong consensus on this point, clearly a big rebellion against it, but a majority of Americans still favor it. It's got to be able to take those contending forces and boil them down into something other than complete paralysis and anarchy. And when you don't have enough organization to build a policy or direction out of all that, no one is happy. And that's the state we're in right now. All right. That's a perfect segue to our next segment. We're going to take a break. Um, both Jonathan and Michael are going to stay with us. Uh, David Daly is going to join us to talk about a mechanism that they did build that may be a dragon that's kind of hard to ride. Uh, we'll come back after this. Do you feel that your vote matters? Not really, no, no. I don't, you know, I don't vote too um, often, so. I think depending on what you're voting for, I think if it's a big scale, like a presidential candidate, it depends. Uh, but if it's a small scale vote, I think that sometimes your voice can be heard and your vote can count. Of course, every vote matters. That's one of the things that's wrong with this country. You only got about 30% of people vote. You know, you got people in other countries dying for the rights that we take for granted. That's why we got so many idiots in office now, because you don't have <laughs> enough people voting. That's why we have so many idiots in office. All right, so that was uh, voices. Those were voices from the street, gathered by Leah Myers, one of our fine interns. She was in Blueback Square, uh, and then uh, was also edited by Esther Shitu and Adriana Smith, two of our other fine interns. It was a team effort. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so uh, we've been talking with, and we'll continue to be talking with uh, Michael Lind. He's the co-founder of the New America Foundation, the author of uh, many books about politics, including most recently Land of Promise and Economic History of the United States, and Jonathan. Rausch is contributing editor at The Atlantic and The National Journal and a senior editor at Brookings Institution. He wrote the cover story on the July-August issue of The Atlantic, How American Politics Went Insane. Uh, now joining us via phone is David Daly, author of Blank. No, I did it wrong. Rat Blanked. <laughs> I almost did it really wrong. Uh, of Rat Blanked, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. <laughs> I'm still laughing about that. America's democracy. Uh, he's the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the new publisher and CEO. We're very excited of the Connecticut Mirror. Welcome to this conversation, David Daly. Thanks for having me, Colin. It's a pleasure to join such a distinguished group. So your story uh, kind of begins uh, after the 2008 elections and before the 2010 uh, election. Uh, you uh, focus in particular on a kind of a Republican political operative uh, named Chris Jankowski. Explain what it is that, that he figured out. Well, what Jankowski realizes um, after 2008, which is a terrific year for the Democrats, they, they pulled out a supermajority of the Senate. You elect Barack Obama. They renew their majority in the House. Um, and Jankowski realizes that actually 2010 is going to be the truly important election because that's a census year, and we redistrict every legislative seat in state houses and in the Congress after zero years. And Jankowski realizes, because he's, he's an expert at working in state capitals, and he understands that it's a lot more cost-effective to go after state seats. So he studies the redistricting process in state after state, comes up with a $30 million plan to take control of state capitals nationwide. This is called Red Map. 
um, and it works beautifully. Um, 2010 is a big year for the Republicans. It often is simply because it's an out year. It's a midterm election, and if you recall, that's the summer of uh, death panels and town halls and the like. So that money injected into just the right states, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Texas, has a terrific impact. Republicans are able to draw with complete control. Democrats have no say at all. 193 of the 435 seats in the House. Um, Democrats have complete control over just 44. And in in 10 years um, from the previous time in 2001, it, it completely turns around. Um, the other element here is that the technology has gotten so good, it's so precise, it's so exact, that the second a piece of RedMap is, is giving amazing mapping and technology skill power to the people in the state capitals who are drawing these new congressional lines. And the Republicans draw themselves maps that build a firewall so that in 2012, the first election run on these new maps, 1.4 million more a vote nationwide for Democratic candidates over Republicans, it doesn't matter. The Republican majority in the House holds and is is pretty much unbeatable at this point. So I, I want to bounce this off of um, both Jonathan and Michael, too. So, so Jonathan, in a way, David, Dave Daly is describing um, the precursor to the phenomenon that you're talking about, right? W- w- once you start electing people this way, um, kind of, and, and using also the kind of same technologies that, uh, as Dave points out in his book, uh, allow uh, Amazon to know what book we're going to buy next, probably Dave Daly's book, uh, or or what movie we're going to rent on Netflix or whatever. You start to really know an awful lot about who lives where and what they do and what they're going to do next. So you can even draw these lines more scientifically. You can get uh, the districts you want that will like the candidates you want, somehow or other, you, you one would think that that would create a kind of happy unity in at least one party, the Republican Party, since they're so good at doing it. But as, as Dave describes at the end of his book, Jonathan, what you have instead is a system where poor John Painter can't even function as Speaker of the House. He can't even do the basic things that a Speaker needs to do in uh, vis-a-vis the White House because there are these people uh, now serving in Congress who, who aren't answerable to anybody, apparently. Um, I don't know. You two want, do you want to just sort of react to that, Jonathan? Well, you put me in a, in a corner there because you stated that so well, I'm not really sure I could improve on it. Uh, always annoying in a radio host. Um, so the, I, guess, I guess the thing I might carp at is the idea that the election doesn't matter. The primary elections matter now. As a result of this, you know, a, a lot of these reforms were well-intended like direct primaries, which were supposedly more democratic than, than having you know party leaders choosing nominees. And in some ways, they are more democratic. But it turns out that in these safe gerrymandered districts, a general election really rarely matters. And what matters is the primary election. And the people who turn out to vote in primary elections turn out to be very unrepresentative, not only of the country and especially moderates, but even of their own parties. They tend to be special interests and extremists, and sometimes they're even crazy people. So they get way overrepresented in these districts. And then John Boehner finds himself facing a conference full of people who are in many, in some cases, just ungovernable. There's nothing, and he he can't give them pork anymore. 
they've taken a lot of those tools away. He he can't really influence the nominations particularly. Um, so yeah, this is a this has become a pretty big problem. So Michael Lind, just to further complicate things, I mean, a safe seat isn't always a bad thing, right? I mean, I can give you a specific example. You may have your own. Let's. It's 2002. Uh, Congress is considering a joint resolution on going into Iraq. Let's just say for purposes of discussion, we think that invading Iraq at that moment is a really bad idea. So, I mean, here in Connecticut, John Larson, who has one of the safest seats in America, became one of the most vocal opponents of the invasion of Iraq. Uh, I mean, a fat lot of good it did him or anybody else. But, uh, you know, where other people really had to consider the electoral consequences of breaking ranks or, or of, uh, of appearing not to be sufficiently patriotic to want to avoid Iraq. I mean, a guy like Larson, because he's got a safe seat, it's not exactly a gerrymandered seat. It's just a very blue uh, congressional district in a very blue state. He can say what he actually actually believes in, in that context. It's kind of a good thing. Well, the problem is when there are almost no contested seats, uh, uh, either in the House or the Senate, uh, fair vote, uh, an organization that uh, promotes electoral reform, uh, has the data, if, if uh, anyone wants to look it up uh, uh, at fairvote.org, uh, about uh, how how the number of actual competitive races has dwindled. Partly it's a result of this ingenious Machiavellian gerrymandering that was described so well, but partly it's just because of a kind of natural pattern you see emerging in the United States and also in Western Europe, where you get, it's it's really like two societies on the same soil. You get sort of the big uh, trade-exposed cities with large numbers of immigrants, where, where most of the very affluent people and professionals live, and then they're surrounded by suburbs and exurbs. Uh, which are mostly working class uh, and middle class, not a whole lot of rich people, not a whole lot of uh, poor people. And even if you got rid of gerrymandering and had complete non-partial redistricting, you you would see this uh, pattern. It's very striking. If if you look at county maps of the last couple of presidential elections instead of state maps, the uh, blue states and red states disappear. And what you have is actually blue metro areas in, in in this giant red landscape. And so, you know, to some extent, this is being driven by uh, social forces. Uh, now, having said that, the United States was always deeply divided, you know, between Anglo-Americans and European immigrants, between Catholics and Protestants. But there were various structures which allowed compromise of the kind Jonathan has, has described so well. So, you know, even if you had these safe seats, uh, in the past, I'm from the South. I mean, the whole solid South was one big safe seat uh, under segregation. But nevertheless, there were party elders who could pressure recalcitrant members, you know, in, into going along with compromise. And, you know, so again, if there's no kind of structure and if every uh, member, everyone who goes into politics uh, is just, the, the, it's basically let justice you know, rule or or the heavens perish, you know, then we're kind of stuck in gridlock. You know, Dave, at the end of your book, one of the things you talk about is sort of the aftermath of Newtown and a conversation not unlike the one that we just had in the aftermath of Orlando and not unlike the one we had in the aftermath of Charleston. Um, And you describe a, a gridlock process not unlike the one that got you know, the, the the Murphy filibuster to happen and, and then the sit-in in the House to happen. But the thing that I'm puzzled by is 
you know, I mean, if you poll people, uh, like, should every gun purchase in America be accompanied by a background check? Every single one uh, be accompanied by a background check. Uh, you're going to get 80 to 90 percent agreement on that. So I don't understand why the gerrymandering process leads to the impossibility of passing something that jo- that enjoys 80 to 90 percent uh, of uh, support. If you get a safe seat, why not just do that? Or are you more open to the NRA's manipulations because you have a safe seat? Well, I think that you have to look at how these seats are being drawn. Um, the the 80 members of the House have Freedom Caucus, the uh, Suicide Caucus folks who um, have stood in the way of so much of, of the president's agenda, um, they are running in districts that don't look like the rest of the country. The, the districts that the Republicans drew after the, the 2010 census for themselves are whiter than to the rest of the country, even at a time when our demographics are moving in the other direction. Um, so they're not responsive to normal politics. Um, I think Jonathan and Michael are absolutely right. Um, when you have this many non-competitive elections um, and this many districts in which the only race is to the extreme of a party base on either side, then what y- you get essentially are are – are non-responsive members. Um, and I, I don't think it's just on guns. I think that there is more consensus in this country on a raft of issues than the way our our Congress is set up to actually deal with it, which is not very well. Uh, on that uh, cheery note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with all three of these terrific guests for our final segment after this. All right. Uh, we're back. First of all, I have to do what Kayon usually does and uh, thank everybody who helped out today. That would start with Betsy Kaplan, uh, who conceived of and produced the show. Uh, Jonathan McPants is on the board today. Greg Hill, of course, is in the house tweeting at WNPR Colin. I should say you can tweet at WNPR Colin and he will tweet back at you. Uh, Ether Shitu and Adriana Smith are our interns today. The part of Bill Curry was played by Sherrod Brown. Uh, and we're back talking to Michael Lind, Jonathan Rausch and uh, David Daly. Uh, David Daly is the author of, see if I can do it right this time, Rat Blanked, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. Uh, Michael Lynn's most recent book is uh, Land of Promise, an Economic History of the United States. Uh, And Jonathan Rausch has the cover story in the July-August issue of The Atlantic, How American Politics Went Insane. Well, I think it's time. I mean, we can't send people out into the, the night or afternoon with such bleak um, uh, prospects uh, filling their heads. We have to talk a little bit about uh, how this system could be done better. So, uh, Dave Daly, you've written a terrific book with just great storytelling in it about uh, about how we got to where we are and how big this problem is of gerrymandering. Um, one of the things that, that people want to know is, well, I mean, how do we get out of this? I mean, we've, we've got a, a 2020 cycle coming up in, in, the, in the near offing. So how can things be done better? I wish I was the right person to send folks off with a smile on their face. I think that this is a really difficult story to 
put a happy ending on. The Democrats right now are working on their own version of the Republican red map plan. Um, they're calling it Advantage 2020. They've thrown $70 million at it, and they're trying to um, flip chambers across the the country. Um, and it's just going to make our politics, even at the local level, angrier, noisier, more expensive, nastier, and more negative. Um, the Republicans patted them on the head and said, we're going to run Red Map 2 in 2020. We've, we've got $125 million lined up for it. So we can all brace for that. Um, the Democrats will still have to win on these tilted maps, and the maps are as tilted in state in state uh, legislatures as they are at the congressional level. So it is a real uphill battle. The system is knotted up in many, many places. Um, the folks at FairVote have lots of really, really interesting ideas on possible reforms here. Um, I don't know how realistic a lot of them are. I have a feeling that things are going to have to reach a different kind of tipping point before folks are ready to consider the kinds of electoral reforms that they talk about, multi-member districts, ranked choice voting, things like that. But uh, there's a lot of really, really interesting ideas there. There's also a really interesting case working its way through the courts in Wisconsin, which is designed to show something called the efficiency gap, which is designed to measure the number of wasted votes. And it's aimed uh, squarely at Justice Kennedy, who has indicated that he is open to a to finding a a, a standard that w would show partisan gerrymandering if anybody could find one for him, um, and this is designed to to do just that. So there's uh, possible remedies in the courts, um, or with uh, citizen referendums that uh, force nonpartisan gerrymandering. I think it's really really difficult to ask the politicians to take politics out of something that is. That's so inherently political. Yeah. Well, we're not asking them to take politics out of it, just uh, asking them to focus less so less exclusively on their own benefit and their own politics. So I was looking for sort of an optimistic voice here, not to say that Michael and Jonathan aren't going to uh, do that. Uh, and uh, I found, a, I hate TED Talks, by the way, like I really hate them. But anyway, I found a TED Talk by Pia Mancini. Uh, she is an Argentinian activist. And so she and her group in Argentina, they're young people, and they, they thought, how can we use software to... Because to, to, Argentina has a same problem. These problems exist all over the place, basically. Uh, the notion, anyway, that elected representatives are not particularly responsive to the people who elected them. So how could we change that? So they built this piece of soft software. It's called Democracy OS. Uh, and the whole idea was uh, that uh, your phone would tell you in plain language what the Congress was thinking about in Argentina. And then you could tell your phone just by pressing, you know, one of three possible buttons what you wanted done about that. And then that would go directly to the people in Congress, and they would really know what you wanted them to do. I can probably guess already how well that worked out. But let's hear, uh, hear, talk, hear her talk about the fact that they took this idea and they asked one of the major parties or both of the major parties in Argentina just to kind of accept this software so they'd be getting this information from the people. And they were basically laughed out of Congress. Uh, so here's Pia Mancini telling you about the next step. The challenges that we face, they're not technological. They're cultural Political parties were never willing to change the way they make their decisions. So it suddenly became a bit obvious that if we wanted to move forward with this idea, we needed to do it ourselves. And so we took quite a leap of faith 
And in August last year, we funded our own political party, El Partido de la Red, or the Net Party in the city of Buenos Aires. And taking an even bigger leap of faith, we ran for elections on October last year with this idea. If we want to sit in Congress, our candidates, our representatives, were always going to vote according to what citizens decided on democracy as. It was our way of hacking the political system. Right. It didn't work that well, except it sort of got them a seat at the table. They're getting listened to a little bit more. So, I mean, that's one way to go. Um, uh, uh, Jonathan Rausch, uh, do you have sort of a, an optimistic vision, a way that this system could become more responsive to the people who want to be responded to? I mean, if, in fact, the Bernie Sanders model or the Donald Trump model are not necessarily workable or adoptable, there's some streak of populism in there that we'd like to get heard in a way that's constructive. You know, I come at this from the other direction. I'm a real skunk at the garden party here. Uh, people will see why if they read my Atlantic article. If they want more solutions, and there's there's no shortage of, of ideas and people out there trying to get heard now from my side of the argument, um, folks can go to the Brookings website and download this. It's really a pamphlet. It's a, an essay called Political Realism, How Hacks, Machines, Big Money, and Backroom Deals Can Strengthen American Democracy. And this is an entirely different take on reform. This says we've already gone too far in dismantling the parties, the establishment, the insiders to the point where there's no one left who can organize. So let's take our foot off the windpipe of that whole system. Let's derig the system because the system is rigged now heavily against parties, insiders, and professionals and allow them to start doing their job. A lot of the stuff we need to do, like allow them to use pork barrel spending to meet in private, to negotiate, to give party leaders more sway over primary elections, uh, senior, restore seniority and regular order in Congress. Um, these things are not hard to do technically. Um, the really big challenge, Colin, is the hostility of both the American public and the elite to the idea that you need political parties that function. And that's the thing that I think that's fixable, but that's going to it's going to take a few years. So, M Michael Lind, uh, you, you may wind up getting the last word here, uh, just uh, the way the clock's working out. But so uh, give us your vision. Uh, how, how do we make things better after this cycle, assuming we're all still alive after this cycle? Well, gerrymandering and uh, changing how districts are drawn, that's a generational campaign. It's not going to happen in the next few years. Uh, neither is electoral reform. Uh, the single most important reform I think we need is abolishing the Hastert rule. This is uh, named after Denny Hastert as Speaker of the House. It's simply the practice of Republican majorities in the House not allowing everyone in the House, Republican and Democrat, to vote on something that is not supported by a majority of the Republicans in the House. If you got rid of that, you, there would be at least some more cross-partisan voting on particular issues. So I think that's a, a purely self-inflicted wound that has no basis in our, our constitutional system, and, and we could get rid of that. The other thing kind of paradoxically is uh, you could argue for weakening the leadership in the House and in the Senate and strengthening caucuses. You can make the case that – now, you can, you can do this while strengthening parties you know, at the, at the national level, but arguably between the 1920s and the 1980s, we had sort of a de facto four-party system with liberal Republicans, liberal, conservative Democrats, and, and liberals and conservatives in, the, uh, in both parties. 
and they it was more fluid. You could have, uh, for example, uh, Republican Democratic coalitions with respect to civil rights, with with uh, New Deal legislation, with various other things. Uh, and one of the problems that has happened is, beginning with Newt Gingrich, he tried to uh, run the Republican Party in the House as though it were a, a centralized parliamentary party. Uh, and the Democrats have, have moved somewhat in that direction, too. So at this point, the, the op, you know, structural reform is, is a long-term prospect. But you could loosen things up and have a bit more cross-partisan uh, collaboration in the House and the Senate uh, with these these purely institutional reforms, which are based in custom, not in, in our constitutional structure. Yeah. I bet you they're not going to call it the Hastert Rule anymore. You know, I mean, they're just—it's like if you had a football rule called the OJ rule, you change the name of it anyway. So, Dave Daly, I probably have enough time for to ask you kind of a yes or no question, and not much more than that. But like, clearly, one of the things that's obvious is from the point point of view of certain Republicans, like the people who are really kind of trying to lead the party, this isn't all that workable. I mean, it's not that workable even for Paul Ryan. It certainly wasn't workable for for John Boehner. It's not workable for sort of the donor elite, you know, who wanted Jeb Bush. You, you've got a system that, as much as they've rigged it doesn't really work for them. Did, did you run into anybody who kind of acknowledged that, like, we built this thing and now we can't ride it? They have not quite come to that realization yet at the at this level, which is amazing to me because they bought themselves the greatest political bargain in American history, $30 million to take control of the House for a decade, and they were convinced that this would be their salvation. And instead, they were unable to control the caucus that it created. Um, but I don't see them stopping. They are moving into New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Kentucky, trying to take those states next time. Um, so it is it is not as if they have learned from what happened last time that creating uncompetitive districts weakens their institutional control. I hear music that says it's time to go. Dave Daly's book is... <laughs> Rat blanked. I always want to do it the other way around. The true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. Thanks so much to David Daly, to Michael Lind, and to Jonathan Rausch. What a great panel you guys were. Uh, and thanks to, to Betsy Kaplan.